Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, welcome to Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl and I'm sitting next to my incredibly clever and witty wife, Stephanie Sovendahl. Hello, hello. Someone commented that I made, I just said that you were beautiful because I think you're beautiful when I look at you, but you have so much more to offer. So I'm going to use comments like witty and clever. How about intelligent intelligent and articulate all of those all of those things <laughs> so thanks for um tuning back in we hope you enjoyed last week's podcast that was uh one on COVID 19 with dr reed caldwell from new york city we really appreciate reed coming on the show it was great to hear his insight and as we predicted on that podcast we said man things are gonna be so different when we're back again to the next podcast and uh things have changed the numbers have just gone through the roof new york hasn't gotten any easier um i keep in touch with Reed. And I think his last shift, he said 15 of the 24 patients he was dealing with were having significant respiratory distress. So my hat's off and my support to all the people in those totally inundated areas. It's incredible um, what they're going through right now. Yeah. Stay in the fight. We're proud of you. And thanks for doing that job. Yep. And thanks for sharing your little bit of free time with us here to educate people. So we appreciate that. So the title of the podcast is Match on a Fire Medicine and More. And what we wanted to do is intermittently have the more part, which is the background of medicine. So not only just talk about teaching medicine and concepts of medicine and physiology, but really what does that entail when you have a career in medicine and you're working in medicine? How does that make you feel? And that ultimately brings us to uh, my book, which is a little bit embarrassing to talk about, but I thought it was appropriate because it's just so fitting for what we're going through. You know, when you write a book, it starts years ago and Steph will attest to that. Nine years ago. And then you get a publisher and you get it all planned out and you lay this almost a nine month map out to when you're going to release the book. And my book's coming out May 12th. And it's just so um, crazy that it's in the middle of a pandemic. And you can't really stop that engine once it's running. It's just going. And the cover of the book has a picture of me wearing a surgical mask. And it's just so odd that like a premonition that it was going to be coming out during this pandemic. It's kind of crazy. So the title of the book is Fragile, Beauty and Chaos, Grace and Tragedy, and the Hope that Lives in Between. And I started to write this book a long time ago, not because I was trying to write a book. It was more that I was stressed about what I was seeing in the emergency department and I needed an outlet. So I'd come home and I'd kind of try to get my thoughts on paper just so that I could somehow deal with you know, seeing a kid die or seeing someone that was being held in their family's arm pass away or suffer a hardship. And it was really kind of to deal with those emotions that I was not prepared to deal with at all. Yeah, I was a little concerned. I remember when you started writing this, once again, years and years ago, I would come home and I remember just seeing random note cards put together on the kitchen counter. And the titles were things like zebra next to a title of ping pong, next to a title of church, and next to a title of Funeral Suck. And I wasn't quite sure how those all <laughs> related and what we were trying to get at. I felt maybe unsafe at home for a little while. <laughs> There's a comedian who talks about what he wants to get, what he wants to do when he goes to Walmart. And he asked for three unrelated items just to throw off the clerk. And he's like, I would like some underwear, a Bible, and some rope. That's kind of what these titles are yeah. like, right? Yeah, I was nervous. <laughs> I'll hopefully bring it back together. So when I applied to med school, I thought I kind of was ready. I thought I was in the know. I knew what to expect. I'd worked on an ambulance. I'd watched ER on TV. So, I mean, I was good to go, right? I was going to go into this med school, get all the information, 
come out a doctor, start saving people, and it would be a great profession. That's really what was in my mind. What's crazy too about Shannon going to med school is it, it was his plan C, which for most of us, our plan A, B, and C for professions are like hostess, then waitress, then bartender. His was like fighter pilot, professional cyclist. Eh, I'll be a doctor. It's not quite that way. I mean, it, it, you know, and I, I, I like to let everyone know, you know, when I have med students following me and they say, how do I get into you know, residency or, or, or a student who wants to go to medicine, how do I get into med school? I always tell them, just follow what your passion is. You know, be you. You need to do you. And that's really what this is. It's not different plans in place to become a doctor. It was, I just was following my passion at the time. And life happens, meaning good things happen and bad things happen that either let you get to that goal or not. And that's really what Fragile is about, meaning, you know, yeah, I did want to be a fighter pilot. And that fell apart. That fell apart for me. And I was a little bit lost after that. But if you just keep on following your passion, you know, you, you come out and you figure out where to go next. When I got to med school, thinking that I was all ready to go and cocky. Ultimately, once I started to take care of patients and get on the floor and be there in the middle of the night, I realized that I had no clue. I mean, I was literally in a hurt cave without a flashlight. Like my, the emotional depth of that stuff really weighed on me. And, and it was hard because you don't talk to the other residents or med students about it. And certainly I don't. I'm not one to like readily talk about my emotions. Steph will attest to that. So, you know, in front of people, I'm fine. But when I would go home, I would be like, wow, this is really heavy and this is really rough. Do you feel like there's a way to help people prepare for that? I mean, we get this pre-hospital a lot too. Like, you know, you think you feel ready to go to med school or you feel ready to go to paramedic school or even become an EMT. And how do you prepare for those emotions? Is there a way until you just go through the fire? I mean, I almost think it's, you just have to go through the fire. Like the way that you grow, and we say this all the time, the way that you grow is you have to be uncomfortable. So there's no way to get yourself totally prepared and comfortable for what you're going to experience and those life and death situations that you're going to be in. And yeah, you need to be aware that you should have a support mechanism in place. You should have a release. You should have some activity that you like to do. But I think that it is kind of the deal where once you sign up for that, man, you are going into this black hole. And I talk about that in the book. You're, you're getting right on that cusp, right on the event horizon, meaning that you can get sucked into the abyss of this black hole if you're not careful. And you really have to be ready to how to stay on the outside. And if you can stay on the outside of that black hole, if you can stay right there on the event horizon, it actually opens up everything for you. The point of this book is, is that you need that kind of rough patches and emotional despair to experience the flip side. So that's really why this book is dedicated to you, Steph. You know it is, right? You read that first page. It's because you have to experience this total downside, these things that you think are tragic and terrible, to then experience the upside, to experience all that life has to offer. And it's that full spectrum of emotion that I'm really trying to get across with Fragile. Fragile is not a book about being sad or seeing death and you know suffering from PTSD. Fragile is about resiliency. It's about how do I take those things in and let them shape my soul, really, to then experience all of life. And that's what, what I was trying to get across. It is so crazy that what you just said completely is applicable to everything we're going through right now. We have this pandemic going on and your book, Fragile, coming out. And it is like so relevant for what we're going through right now. And you finished writing this how long ago? A couple of years ago. It is so crazy to me as I sit here and hear you talk about it, that you stopped writing this two years ago. and it is so incredibly applicable to everything we're going through right now. Like not just some people experience how fragile life is, 
but everyone in the world right now is experiencing the fragility of life. And it's just, it is, it's amazing to me as we sit here and recap it all, how applicable it is. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm, I mean, I'm continually reminded of this in the ER and at work. And then when the pandemic comes, I'm reminded of it at home. Like I'm reminded of it everywhere because yeah. it's just so amazing. The quote that I use to start the book out is by Seneca. And the quote is, sometimes even to live is an act of courage. And I think that that is also fitting right now because it's scary. It's scary to be a healthcare provider and go to work. I'm afraid for me. I'm afraid to bring it home to my family. It's scary for family um, members yeah. of healthcare workers yeah. too and anyone who's frontline right now. And I'm afraid that, you know, we won't have enough supplies. I won't be able to take care of my patients. Like all this stuff just like creates a lot of apprehension because of this. Yeah. And oftentimes when you get home from work, that used to be able to be like your safe space where now we're worried about what are you bringing home? Do we need to isolate? What do we need to do? And it's no longer kind of your safe spot when you get home. And for everyone, everyone is feeling this right now. It's just palpable. Yeah. That quote you just read from Seneca, I remember too, I just realized you wanted us to name our daughter Seneca. I did. I and was big on Seneca. you pushed for Senna because I was out on Seneca. Yes. And you guys, I don't know if you know, Senna is one of the greatest race car drivers ever. Martin Senna. So I, I was close. I had her bought into that one. Well, I was into Senna until someone was like, oh, that's the name of my laxative. Yeah. So, <laughs> so our, our daughter's name is Sabea. But anyways, with that said, I would love to hear a few more nuggets. I bet our audience would like to hear a few more nuggets from your book. So do you mind sharing a little bit? Um, yeah, this is probably awkward, me reading some of the book, but I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i just start with the prologue. And remember, this isn't an audio book. I'm actually just going to read it. So I might mess up a little bit, but bear with me. So the first chapter in every chapter of the book is associated with a song. fringe, red rider. I remember standing motionless in the doctor's lounge, staring at my hands. Things had changed. I was someone different. Someone my friends and family might not recognize if I let them in, really let them see my true soul. But that wasn't possible, not for me. I was too guarded, always guarded, always in control. It wasn't just today that had changed me. It had been everything. All I wanted to do was see my boys. I wanted proof that they were safe at home. I wanted to see them alive, well, laughing and playing. Finding joy in the little things like Legos, action figures, and our dog Ryder. Instead, I was alone, feeling the frantic drone of a busy emergency department. There was no time for reflection or emotion. Patients were waiting to be seen. Trauma Room 11 had just given me a cold taste of reality. No superhero saves or knights in shiny armor. Just a simple fact that sometimes really bad things happen. In the background, the TV mounted in the corner of the room played ESPN baseball highlights. With the excitement of a lottery winner, the well-groomed commentator extolled the virtues of Alex Rodriguez because he had hit yet another home run. He makes close to $58,000 every time he steps to the plate. I guess he deserves it, the pressure and all. I didn't make note of who won the game. I can only recall Alex. 
I stood like a zombie in the middle of the lounge, numb, like the poor zebra you see in Animal Planet after having one of its legs chomped off by a hidden crocodile during a compulsory river crossing in Tanzania. The look, that look, on the zebra's face always struck me as a bit misplaced, because it was devoid of any apparent emotion or concern. Moments from death tripoding on the far shore, the zebra appeared totally detached and disassociated from the dire predicament. As I stood there, I felt the same as that zebra, vacant of any emotional content. I understood the look. I shouldn't have been able to push my emotions aside, not if I possessed some small fleck of compassion or empathy, because this wasn't normal. This wasn't what people experienced day to day, at least not normal people. But I had been trained to be this way, no panic, just a calm journeyman's approach to an affliction, like a mathematician working in an equation. Years of preparation, acquiring a skill set, building up my vault, had readied me to stand in the lounge like a zebra. And so I stared at my hands to see if I was actually here, to see who I was. Maybe I was hoping to see something different, anything really, a tremble, a shake, but I saw nothing. Just my hands, steady, solid, quiet. The clock clicked, 8.21. It was one of those old school clocks, like you see on the wall in grade school. I had zoned out looking at a similar clock at my son's last parent-teacher conference. The second hand was rigid and jerky, making a big move forward, then a small move back. Big forward, small back. Everything fits together, like the pieces of a giant puzzle. The picture becomes clear only when the dark colors blend with the bright. The picture is revealed because of the unity of pieces. I felt the seconds ticking, moving forward from 821. Even though it didn't look like it, deep down, the last 30 minutes had kicked my ass. From the outside, I was calm. But somewhere inside, the hideous reality of death and suffering screamed and rattled in my well-guarded cage. Sheesh. Every time I would read a chapter here, I know I felt like Somewhere in me, I could somewhat relate to it. Like that makes me think of feelings I had after a really rough call. And I would sit in the ambulance by myself for a little while and just stare at the wall and think about stuff. And it brings me right back to that. The other thing too, when I would read your book is I'm like, I want to know a little bit more. Like it left, you know, like I'm like, what? So can you tell us like when that was and what had happened? And Well, I probably shouldn't tell you what had happened if you want to <laughs> read the book and have something uh, to look forward to. But it was obviously a rough case. And it was part of that whole mindset that when you come into medicine, you think you're going to be the superhero. But really, the superhero saves are so limited compared to what you have to suffer through. You know, I thought I would step to the plate every time you hit a home run. But man, even the best hitters in baseball, they only hit a third of the time, mm -hmm. right? And so that realization that you have all these rough calls, rough cases to try to get the one that you can remember that's crazy. And we've talked about this before that I relay the story when I'm at Thanksgiving dinner with my family and my mom says, I'm so proud of you because you're a doctor and you must be happy for all the people that you saved. You know, like you must be proud. And in that moment when she said that, I had the realization that I never think about those people. I only mm -hmm. think about the other people. I think about all mm -hmm. the people that I didn't do like a good enough job for. The movie, The Guardian. Yeah, it's like The Guardian. The number at the end. And he says 13 and he's like, I can't remember if it was 22. 22, is that 22. what it was? Sorry about that. And he's like, well, that's okay. <laughs> and uh, he's like, that's not the number I've saved. That's the number I've lost. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how that... That's the Guardian's the a good that, movie. If you guys haven't oh, seen that, man. the soundtrack's it really good me. too. I think uh, the soundtrack's actually one of the songs in the book, so... I remember asking my mom, I said, man, there's been... When I was a new EMT, 
I thought I was getting into this to save everyone as well. And I said, there's times where I feel like I did everything wrong and they live and I do everything right and they don't live. And so I'm trying to figure out what my role is. And she said, your role is just to show up. And I thought that like, you know, was really profound to me because just being there, obviously you want to be there and you want to do your best every time, but sometimes it doesn't always change the outcome. So just showing up, I thought was really valuable. I think that that applies so much to right now with all of the you know, first responders and healthcare providers that I'm so proud to be affiliated with is because, you know, when this stuff happens, when this goes sideways, they show up. Every like, time you they know, show up. All the people that I work with at the hospital, all the people in the pre-hospital agencies, I mean, they're totally showing up and it's incredible. So yeah. again, shout out to all you guys for doing your job. I'm really proud to be associated with you. I mean, it's a hard time and it's crazy. Thank you so much for showing up just to, you know, be there. So Shannon, I'm guessing I know probably the easiest chapters to write. Since <laughs> I'm your muse. <laughs> uh, but what were the hardest? What, like what in this book, what was the hardest part for you? Well, let me go back to you for a second. Uh-oh. Like it's hard when you're, you're married and you, you, you know, give a book that's written to Steph and there's chapters called Stephanie in the book that I'm like, man, we better not break up because that would probably be problematic for me. The hardest chapter in the book is, I think most of them, to be honest, like I, it's hard to write. Like I don't like to write. But you like to have written. That is absolutely true. I like to be done with this book. I'm very happy to be done with this book and I'm proud to be done with this book, but I don't look forward to sitting down and writing. It's not like I talked about it being a release at the beginning for me because I was trying to get my emotions intact. But then once this book started to sh- take shape and I was writing a book and I had labeled it, it's a, it's a lot of work. And, and the problem for me is, is the stories that I tell you in this book, the patients that taught me something, it took a little piece of my soul to do that. So when you lose somebody, it's not, it's not for free. And I talk about that in this book. There's a chapter that I refer to where we're at a cocktail party. You and I are at a cocktail party. And this woman comes up to me and she's asking me, what is the worst thing that I've ever seen? Or, or what's the most terrible thing? And she's, she's all giddy about this. She's gulping her wine, asking me about this. And you know what I said to her? Uh-oh, I don't know. I said nothing. Oh. I just took a drink of my beer and looked for my escape route. And the reason why is because when someone asked me that question, what I'm doing is I'm creating a list in my brain, a Letterman top 10 list of terrible things I've seen. And it's not just me kind of thinking about it. It's me feeling what happened. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of pre-hospital and hospital providers that get asked that question. And I don't know, I answer it different almost every time. Sometimes I try to be funny about it. And um, sometimes I'm serious and I tell them something terrible and then they are regretful yeah, that they asked the question. I don't know if I've ever responded with silence just because I'm a talker, but it is interesting. I get uncomfortable every time I have to answer that question. And unfortunately we get it a lot. So I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say. Yeah. If you guys have any good escape routes, when you get that kind of question, <laughs> let me know. Cause I'm usually, they just think I'm a dick <laughs> and I walk away. So mm-hmm. it was super cool for me to hear you read that prologue because I know people can't see us while we're doing this podcast, but I can watch you when you read and you get affected by this reading still. And you've been working on this for a really long time. So it was really cool to see how affected you get just while you read it. 
it kind of takes you back to it. So we continue to read maybe just a little bit more to close out this podcast so people can get one more taste of it. Yeah, it's always hard to read some chapter in the middle, but I'll just pick a middle chapter. And remember, it starts with the song, so I'll give you that, and then we'll go into the chapter. There was a man of confused and sad nature Thought no one loved him, that was not true Said he was a lost soul, didn't fit in anywhere Didn't know where to turn or who to turn to Not like TV, Lost Soul, Bruce Hornsby. It's not like it is on TV watching someone die. Grey's Anatomy makes it all seem so cool and dramatic. Music playing in the background, pain facial expressions on good-looking actors. But when a patient really dies, when my patient dies, it isn't such a great drama. It bites away a piece of my soul, like a service charge for the job. As a boy, I had a stuffed animal, Bugs Bunny. It was one of the few times I had won anything at an amusement park. By a pure fluke, I tossed a ping pong ball that landed in a red box in a vast waffle board of mostly white boxes. I wasn't the stuffed animal type of kid, but you can't just disregard something that fortune sets on your lap. Even though I preferred my action figures, skateboard, and BMX bike, Bugs Bunny had a special place. He would be my patient, and I'd be his surgeon. Unfortunately, Bugs was sickly. I'd have to operate on him every few weeks. I had acquired the tools, a pickup, and a clamp during a school tour at the hospital. I supplied the pocket knife. My mom would hide a marble somewhere in Bugs' body, and then I'd have to diagnose the problem and take him to the operating room. I became an expert surgeon. My incisions were perfect. My closures would have made the best seamstress raise an eyebrow and take notice. I took it all very seriously. I mean, come on. These were very risky procedures I was performing under less than ideal circumstances on my desk, in my room, with questionable sterile conditions. The most amazing aspect of all these surgeries was my success rate. Bugs' doctor never failed him, ever. In over 20 surgeries, I never lost Bugs. It might have been touch and go at times, but in the end, he lived. He always lived. It's weird for me being with a dead person. I've seen a lot of them, but never have gotten totally used to it. On the surface, sure, but not on the inside, deep down. They look like they're wearing makeup, like powder and cover-up. The wrinkles, the small ones, that you don't worry about when you're living, often disappear. The muscle tension is gone, like a Botox treatment. The skin seems flat, and the subtle shades of color leave. My first dead person was my Nana. She died from colon cancer when I was seven. I have only glimpses of memory, her white hair, her apron, a crooked nose. I really didn't know what cancer was at the time, but I knew it was bad. It made her skinny, pale, and bedridden. It also made her itch her nose all the time. In hindsight, that was from the morphine, but I associated it with the cancer. She wore a nasty bag that smelled foul and came out of her stomach. I knew I didn't want cancer. The night before her funeral, we went to the mortuary to view her casket. It was similar to being in church, but different. I felt as though I couldn't make a sound, like I'd better behave or there'd be bigger ramifications than a shushing from my parents. Her coffin had the fluffy satin padded wrapping on the inside edges. It looked like if you dropped it, the body inside would remain protected and unbroken. Maybe coffins get dropped often. I don't know. When we walked up, I just stared at her. It felt irreverent and respectful at the same time. I tried to catch her moving, anything, a flinch, a small breath, or a little eye flutter. 
that would give her away. The same way they had always given me away when I was trying to trick my sister into believing that she had knocked me out. But as I looked, Nana didn't move. She was either a really good faker or really dead. When I was younger, I used to dream about a big save. I didn't always know I wanted to be a doctor. I realized you might not believe me when I just pointed out that I used to operate on bugs, but I'm telling the truth. It never crossed my mind. But the hero thing, that was legit. Fighter pilot legit. One day I knew that the moment would arrive when all eyes would turn to me and I'd step up to the plate, just like Babe Ruth. I'd point to center field before the pitch and then belt it into the bleachers. I knew I wanted to hit a home run. I just didn't consider the fact that hitting a home run every now and then came with so many strikeouts. That gives me chills. So relatable. And I feel like I remember the time I first read the rough draft. It's again, a few years ago. You were giving me grief because I got all teary eyed. This book brings out so much for so many people. And I just know I felt, felt a lot of solace while reading it then just to like hear that people share similar experiences and go through similar, similar emotions in this profession. I know our jobs are a little bit different, but in general, it gave me a lot of solace. And so kind of what I'm hoping too, is as we're doing this today, is that our listeners uh, in the crazy times that we're all going through right now can find some solace while just hearing the podcast and hearing the bits, but also hopefully reading the entire book. I know I felt that way. I know. And you, you were actually, we were by a pool and you were reading the book and I looked over at you and you were crying. And I was like, this is either good for me or bad for bad. me. I mean, <laughs> she's like, he should stop writing right now or How I'm on the I right track. How do I break it to him yeah. that it's not that good? No, that was definitely not the emotions I was going through. But I, you know, what I read to you so far, it seems heavy. And what we talked about at the beginning is life is fragile and that weighs on your soul. The purpose of this book and the turnaround in this book is that it's all about resilience and it's about how you use this and how it turns you around and lets you feel fully in love, lets you hope, lets you do all the things that you want to do. That's because life is fragile. And so I don't want you to take away from what we read here that this is, well, this is going to be a heavy downer book. It is a heavy book for sure. Don't get me wrong. I, I have a rough time reading it, the stories, like I said, but the end of this book, the way that it turns around is, is about all those positive things. And it's about how I focus on these things in my life and why the book's dedicated to you really. It's because these are the positive things that have come out of this. Once again, it's just so relatable for so many people. And I want to kind of close my portion of this by just saying thank you again to everyone out there on the front lines. And thank you to the families supporting the people on the front lines as well, because I know that they're also going through a significant change and significant stress in these times as well, worrying about their loved ones and kind of being at home while their loved ones are doing it. So I just want to say thank you to everyone listening and going through it and that just know, you know, I think once again, this book does a great job shining a light on this, but just know that on the other side of this, there are going to be so many great things. And I want to reiterate, reiterate what Steph said. Just thanks everyone for their work out there. I know it's stressful and rough, but this is what our job is, providing care to people in times of need. And this is a time of need. And so everyone out there is stepping up to the plate and it's amazing. I mean, life is fragile. Absolutely life's fragile. That's how I came up with the title. You only get one life to live, but if you live that life right, it might just be enough. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.